Good morning. Leviticus 23, 1 through 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, feel free to open uh, your Bibles to Leviticus 23, where we're going to be this morning, and pull out the sermon outline as well from the bulletin to help follow along. Uh, Before we get into uh, the passage for today, though, I just want to mention Pastor Tim, who's one of our pastors here at Grace. His father passed away uh, a couple days ago, and so Tim is out in Missouri uh, with his family uh, for the memorial service, which is tomorrow. Um, His dad had uh, probably a stroke that caused him to pass away suddenly. So if you're friends with Tim or you know Tim, I'd encourage you to be praying for him, or even if you're not, to, to be praying for him and his family. Pray for Tim's mom, uh, who, who lost her husband, and um, that they would be able to uh, experience God's peace in the midst of, of loss. And I imagine in this room, there's probably a lot of us who are going through other losses and other griefs and other sadnesses. So I just want to take a moment to, to sort of open our time uh, in this message in prayer for Tim and for the calling family. And would you join me in that? God, I pray for Tim. Um, to lose your dad is a, a terrible thing. And while we have hope of seeing him again and we have hope of heaven, death is still painful and real and wicked. Um, God, I pray for Tim's mom and for his brothers and for all the Culling family that you would comfort them, uh, that Tim would uh, be able to grieve with hope, uh, but grieve nonetheless. God, may we as a church be an encouragement to the Culling family and a source of uh, ministry of your spirit, even as he ministers to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, this week, uh, as we continue our year of the Bible together, I asked you guys to read the book of Leviticus. Uh, if you're new here, we're going from Genesis to Revelation during 2019. And so each week, we're asking you to read a section of scripture on your own. And then we're covering that in the sermon. Um, Leviticus is a little bit longer than some of the readings I've asked you to do and a little bit more difficult. So if you struggled at all this week, or maybe you got all the way to Leviticus 2 and you you gave up, um, that's okay. Next week is a new passage. You have a new uh, little insert in your reading. There's no shame. Just uh, just try to pick up with where we are as a a group, and uh, you can always go back and and fill it in later um, and, and read it later if you didn't get through all of it this week. Uh, The reason that I asked you to read so much of Leviticus this week is because sometimes when we get to passages we don't understand well, and my experience is most Christians don't understand Leviticus very well, we tend to get bored by it, and we tend to ridicule it. In general, when we come across things we don't understand, we find them to be boring, and we find them uh, to be off-putting. And so with Leviticus, sometimes Bible reading plans, well-intentioned plans to read through the Bible kind of end in Leviticus. We kind of just give up. Like, I don't know. I don't get this. This is boring. I give up. So I asked you to read it quickly through this week. 
I'm not saying skim it, but read it through quickly. Same thing with numbers this coming week uh, to get the overview of what God is saying in this important biblical book. Leviticus at its core um, is a book about worshiping God. It's a book that tells us about what it means to come before God, the holy God of the universe, and worship. Genesis is a book about God's creating and blessing. Exodus is a book about God giving his law and his deliverance. And Leviticus is a book about responding and worship. It's called Leviticus, the first four letters of Leviticus, Levi. It's for the sons of Levi, the the part of Israel that was responsible for leading the worship of God. It's the worship leader book. And when we went through the walk through the Old Testament day that some of you guys were part of, uh, you might remember Leviticus was summarized in two words. And you guys remember what the words were? Offerings and feasts, right? Offerings and feasts. That's what Leviticus is about. We're going to talk about the second of those words today, the feasts of the Old Testament. Today we're going to talk about three parts of that. The first part will be about why would God command Israel, maybe why would he command us too, to celebrate feasts? What's important about understanding feasts? The second one is we're going to talk about what the feasts were. There's seven feasts listed in Leviticus 23. What are those feasts and what can we learn about them? What can we learn about God through them? And then the last part will be some integration. How do we understand these Old Testament feasts in light of being Christians today? Um, a disclaimer on that, I am not ethnically Jewish. I grew up in a Christian family. I don't have any Jewish family members, to my knowledge. And so I did my best to research this and to learn about this, but I don't have the same sort of life experience some of you guys have. I know some of you either come from Jewish backgrounds or you have family members who are Jewish or uh, a spouse who's Jewish. And so I'm going to do my best to represent these feasts um, respectfully as much as I know, but if you say, that's not how we do it in my family, that's not how we do it in my home, Bob, you totally mispronounced that word, um, I, I, don't, I, I would love to learn from you about how these feasts are celebrated in your context. All right, let's talk about why God commanded Israel to celebrate feasts. Look at Leviticus 23.1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. If I were to summarize it, I would say that the feasts existed in order to honor God in community. The reason these holidays are ingrained in Israel's life, the reason these feasts exist, is to help bring them together as a people to worship God. What I want you to notice in those couple of verses is the way that God tells Moses, these are appointed These are required. These will be on the test. Like you have to do these. These are not just an optional thing if you want to get around to them, but God commands Israel to feast. He commands them to take a day off for a holiday. God ingrains in Israel's civic and religious life the importance of celebratory holidays. What does that say about God? That he requires feasts. You know, we often think about God in an abstaining sense, that God keeps us from doing what we want to do. But we see in the feast God pushing us away from sort of self-indulgent redundancy into special times of bringing our eyes towards him in celebration. God insists on people feasting. God insists on employers giving their employees time off in order to worship him. And in so doing, God gives time meaning, right? Rather than just a monotony of day after day is the same, 
from creation, God has set aside one day in seven to mark off as a Sabbath. And now in Leviticus, he marks off certain times of the year in order to show Israel that there's a progression that they're going through as a people. From the time of the beginning of the nation of Israel to the time they're looking forward to, which we're still looking forward to, when we'll dwell with God forever. And these are holy days, God tells them. These are times to be set apart, significant, different than any other day because of what it means to worship God on them. You know, how important a holiday is in our culture is defined by one thing when I was a kid. Do I get it off from school? (laughs) It's not a real holiday if I still have to go to work or to school, right? Um, Christmas is a real holiday, right? Because it is unlike any other day. Not only do you not have to go to school, you get a couple weeks off from school. And you, if you lived every day like Christmas, you would be in massive credit card debt and you would have, you'd weigh 600 pounds, right? Like you can't have every day be like Christmas. That's part of what makes it a sacred and holy day. And these feasts are to be celebrated with God for God's honor. That's part of the holiness of them. They're different than other days. And God instructs Moses and instructs Israel, never neglect to forget these. These aren't just for you, right? These are to be practiced for all generations. They're meant to be worshipful days, not just civic days where you get off work, but days to be reminded of what God has done. In the same, day, in the same way, as you think about your schedule, as you think about our annual calendar, you might think, how am I doing at practicing days that remind me of what God has done? Not just fun traditions we have in our family, but, but turning my eyes upward intentionally whether it's around major holidays like Easter and Christmas or other times throughout the year. Not just allowing the secularization of our world to push in on days set aside to worship God. And in addition to being holy, they're meant to be practiced together. This stands out to me so much that that on the feast days, God intentionally wants to bring his people together. In fact, certain feasts, he requires all the able-bodied people, able-bodied men especially, to come to Jerusalem. Like, I want to bring you together. Those of you guys who are parents or grandparents may feel a pull of this around Christmas time. Like, I just want my family together for this holiday. And God says the same thing to his people. I want you together. These holidays are community forming. They're they're meant to bring together God's people. Now, in this, we see some of the differences between what we see in Leviticus and modern Judaism today. Uh, Because because Jewish people today are spread out around the world because uh, of years of Jerusalem being inaccessible to Jewish people, a lot of these holidays are celebrated in homes uh, or in temples or in congregations as opposed to in Jerusalem, which I'm not a rabbi. I'm not trying to say whether that's good or bad. Um, but that sparks some of the, shows some of the differences between what we see in, uh, in Leviticus and in modern practice. Well, God wants Israel to practice these feasts together because they have a story to tell to the people around them. When the people celebrate them, he wants them to amplify the story of salvation. He wants them to teach it to their children. Holidays are good for that, right? Why is today different than every other day, right? Why is Christmas such a special day? We we get a chance to tell our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids what God has done. And the feasts together envelop and enculturate not just those who come from the family, but those who are the outsider. In the feast, you'll hear God say, include the sojourner, include the immigrant, help them to understand what I've done as part of your people, and represent what I've done to the world. Well, 
that's why the feasts exist. Let's talk about the feasts in some detail here. Um, and as we talk about these feasts, I hope you'll be curious, not just about how they were practiced, but what they teach us about God and about what it means to be God's people. Well, the fe- there are seven feasts listed in uh, Leviticus 23. The first one is different. It's the Sabbath. It's the weekly feast. The other six are annual feasts, means they repeat every year. So the first one is weekly. It's the Sabbath. It occurs outside of the plan of salvation in the sense that it occurs before the fall. The other six occur as God carries out his plan of salvation through Israel. The first three, which occur in the springtime, we'll, we'll talk about this more in detail in a second. The first three occur in springtime, and they're fulfilled in Christ already. The second three occur in the fall, and they're ones that we look forward to as Christians as yet to come. And every year, as Israel would practice these feasts, they'd be reminded of God's faithfulness. And as they'd work through these six annual celebrations, they'd internalize the story of God's uh, redemption, his rest, their responsibility before him, and their future reconciliation that they look forward to. If you're reading through Numbers or Deuteronomy in the next few weeks, and you read about these again, and you think, I swear, this was, didn't I already read this? Yeah, there's actually five times in the Pentateuch that these feasts are described. We're talking about one of them, but each of the five has a little bit different angles on the feasts, complementary angles. In the same way, if I asked five of you to explain what Christmas is like, uh, one of you might talk about when it is, one of you might talk about why it was started, one of you might talk about how you practice uh, celebrating Christmas today, but they'd all be complementary. You see the same thing in scripture. All right, let's talk about the first of the feasts, the Feast of Sabbath. This is verse three. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It's a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. The Sabbath uh, is an incredibly important part of the Old Testament. It goes back from before Adam and Eve were even, uh, had even fallen before God, had even sinned, as a time of setting apart rest in memory and recollection of God's creation. In fact, it's the only of these, only one is only one of these feasts that occurs on a weekly basis, a reminder to Israel that they're reliant and dependent on God. Sabbath is a really important concept, and we can't do it justice here in just a couple of minutes, because um, there's a lot to, to learn about Sabbath from Scripture. But I want to just focus on one part of it, which is that it's included in a feast list. Is that a surprise to you that Sabbath is thought of as a feast? I mean, usually when we think of Sabbath, we think of abstaining, of stopping, right? Uh, Sabbath is the day you're not allowed to work. Sabbath is the day you're not allowed uh, to go to, to uh, do certain things. That, that might be the, the superficial observation. But Sabbath is a feast day, a day of celebrating before God. Uh, it's commanded that we would make space for not just ourselves, but those who are under our authority to have space to worship God and to delight in him as well. I wonder, I, I, I hope, by the way, I hope that you're practicing some version of Sabbath. I know it's a, a sort of foreign concept in our culture that values work really highly. In fact, I imagine some of you are probably either thinking about work while you're here in worship or you're checking your email about work while you're here in worship. Um, it's, it's hard to stop working, I get that. But I hope that you're taking seriously the good that Sabbath is, both for you and for what it says to the world around you about God being worthy of worship. And I hope you're stopping work, I hope you're worshiping, I hope you're resting. But one of the things that I want to encourage you towards today is, how are you doing at delighting in God and on Sabbath? How are you doing at feasting with God on Sabbath? As you think about your weekly rhythm, 
maybe you could think about how you can incorporate a feasting element to Sabbath. Could you take someone with you from church out to lunch later today? Um, could you go down to a, make a picnic and go down to the beach and enjoy God's creation and delight in it? Could you invite someone next week over to your home for dinner and share a meal with them? And remember, as we look at the feast, right, it's community-forming worship. And so there's an emphasis in these feasts on bringing God's people together in order to worship him. And I hope that your Sabbath is part of that. Obviously, in church, we do that, right? That's part of our Sabbath journeys. We, we gather together for worship. Um, but I hope that you're thinking through how you can feast together with people, at least occasionally, if not every week. Um, now, if you take away from this, like, you know what? I should eat more calories on Sunday. Thanks, Bob. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to order, order some tater tots. Uh, I don't know why tater tots are on my mind, but sure. That, that really isn't my point. Uh, my point is the community aspect of being at table with people, of sharing together with others. So um, rather than an encouragement towards self-indulgence, it's an encouragement towards community-forming feasting with others. All right, well, let's get on to the annual feasts that we don't talk about as much as Sabbath. As I mentioned, these feasts are grouped together in, in two clumps, a clump of spring feasts and a clump, a clump of fall feasts. There are three spring feasts, the Passover, the first fruits, and the uh, Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost. So we'll talk about those three first. When we say the spring, we mean sort of March, April time frame. Uh, Israel was on a lunar calendar, a moon calendar, and it's a little different than a solar calendar that most of civilization's been on since the sixth century. Um, so our calendars are a little different, and their timelines are a little different, but in the March-April time frame is when uh, Passover, the festival of the first fruits, the festival of Pentecost happen. Let's talk about Passover first. It, Passover begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and here's how it's described in verse 5. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Unleavened means without yeast, so a, a really flat bread. You might remember when you go through Ralph's or something in uh, March or April around this time frame, you'll see those boxes of matzah bread, those, those really hard crackers. That's sort of a representation of unleavened, unleavened bread. And Passover and, and this unleavened bread festival marks the deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. It's still today one of the high holy days of the Jewish people, 3,500 years ago after it was started. And probably of the ones on this list, the one you're most likely to have some experience with. I'm curious, have any of you guys ever been to a Passover meal, like a family member or something? Okay, a lot less in this service. That's interesting. Um, well, Re Rebecca wanted me to know that she'd went to one. It's pretty cool. Yeah, all right. Well, that's helpful. That's not distracting at all. Okay. <laughs> Well, if you get a chance to participate in one, if you have a, a Jewish friend or family member who invites you into that, that sacred time, I hope you'll take advantage of it. It's a, a beautiful picture of God's deliverance in the Exodus. And there's a lot of uh, symbolism, a lot of wonderful traditions, a lot of things beyond what's represented here in Leviticus 23. Um, the emphasis in this passage is more limited, and it's emphasizing the fact that uh, they need to eat unleavened bread, a reminder of how quickly they people had to had to abandon slavery in Egypt when God delivered them. The emphasis on this passage is to encourage people that God had been faithful in the past, had saved them and delivered them. 
And on this last day, they're reminded to have a holy convocation, a holy assembly, a gathering together to thank God for that. What's well, the same Passover meal, of course, as Christians, that we remember that Jesus shared with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. It remembers how um, Jesus took this event from Israel's history, this time when Israel had been delivered from slavery in Egypt, and Jesus imparted new meaning onto it and said, even as you were uh, saved from slavery, I'm going to save you from the slavery to your sin. And even as the Passover meal represents that someone else had to die, in that case, a lamb, for the sins of Israel, Jesus said it would be his body and his blood that would be given to save us from our sin. The Passover meal is a beautiful picture in, in Israel's history of how God saved his people. But the second Passover, Jesus dying for our sins, reminds us that we are saved because of what he's done. Well, it's fitting that Passover is listed first because it marks the beginning of the Jewish year, the beginning of the Jewish nation. And after they're delivered from slavery in Egypt, remember, they go out and they head to the Holy Land. So the second festival honors that, that they're now in their land. They now have a first harvest. They're saved to live life in the land. This is verse 10. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of the harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. All right, so the second feast, the feast of the first fruits, is a time of anticipation and faith, celebrating that God has brought the beginning of a harvest, but that they trust that he will continue to be faithful uh, in what's to come. This is somewhat similar to our American holiday of Thanksgiving a time set aside to remember that God has been generous with us and to ask him to continue. And it's, it's an anticipatory festival because it says we've seen something good and we're looking forward to what's to come. Paul picks up this language of first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says that Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of what's to come, that we see the, the festival, the first fruits fulfilled in what Jesus had done in raising from the dead. And we look forward with anticipation and faith our own resurrection. The third feast in the spring is the Feast of Weeks, or sometimes called the Feast of Pentecost. Um, it's in, described in verse 15. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. This is sort of the, the bookend of the Festival of first fruits. So when the harvest begins, they celebrate and they say, God, thank you for being faithful. We trust that you will continue to be faithful. And then at seven weeks later, when the spring harvest is done, they come back and they say, God, you have been faithful. And in fact, in verse 20, it says that the priest takes the, the bread from the first fruits in one hand, and he takes the results of the harvest in the other hand. And he waves them together before God as two complementary pieces of God's reminding Israel of God's faithfulness. We had hoped he'd be faithful, and we've seen that he is faithful. If Pentecost kind of sounds familiar, it's because it's on this day that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. It's really important that uh, that connection's made because uh, just like Pentecost was a time of celebrating that God has been faithful, he has done what he said he would do, and that he is the one who has uh, fulfilled everything he told um, Israel he would do, in the same way, the New Testament Pentecost is the culmination of the Spirit fulfilling everything Jesus had promised, leading us into all righteousness, as Paul would say. Um, 
what I think is really interesting about Pentecost also, or unique about it, is that it has an emphasis on the ethical quality of the feasts. That is, Pentecost reminds Israel that it's not just enough to celebrate these things rightly before God if they're sinning against their neighbor. That part of celebrating is treating with respect, dignity, and kindness the people around us. Look at verse 22. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. That's really interesting to me. In, in the middle of a feast, God reminds Israel, hey, how you treat the weakest, most vulnerable people among you tells me whether you really have internalized what this feast is about. If you're going to celebrate a holiday in a way that exploits the poor and takes advantage of the immigrant, you haven't really understood what it means that I am blessing you in order for you to be a blessing to the nations. I hope that you guys practice this as part of annual celebrations in your family. You know, maybe around Thanksgiving time, you think about not just how can we make sure there's enough stuffing for us, how can we make sure that we have enough time off and enough rest, but how can Thanksgiving be a reminder that there are people out there who don't have as much as we do? As a church, we make a big emphasis around this around Christmas time. We do things like Angel Tree, where you guys did such a great job buying presents for kids whose parents are in prison, as a reminder that Christmas isn't just about us receiving gifts, but as being a blessing to the people around us. I wonder, though, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, there's a lot of culture in America around being generous. What about the other 10 months of the year? Like, how can you practice intentional generosity around some of the other feasts of the year? This Thursday is Valentine's Day. It's a free public service announcement if you'd forgotten. Um, and some of you guys are in relationships or you're married, and you might think about, okay, Valentine's Day is all about lovers gazing at each other, but how can our love for each other also help people around us? I mean, how much do flowers cost on Valentine's Day? Like $3,000, $4,000? Like, is there a way that can honor your wife or honor your husband and also and show you that you care about them and also practice generosity towards people outside of just your family, outside of just your home. I, if I get a bunch of emails from people saying, it's your fault that I didn't get flowers, <laughs> I, I, I'm just deleting them, so I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, so those are the spring feasts. Those are the three feasts that are fulfilled in Christ, right? We've already seen the Passover happen with Jesus' death. We've already seen the first fruits happen with Jesus' resurrection. We've already seen Pentecost fulfilled in the coming of the Spirit. Those things are complete in the New Testament. Now, seven months go by in Israel's year before the fall feasts. And these are the feasts that are yet to come. This seven-month gap is probably there for two reasons. One, historically, is this would be the summertime during the hottest time of the year when it would be important for the Jewish people to stay on their farms and difficult for them to travel. The theological reason for the gap is that it's, this is the gap we're experiencing that we're living in now between when Jesus' death, resurrection, and the coming of the Spirit have happened, and when we look forward to the end of time. Um, so in these last three feasts, we're going to see what's yet to come. Uh, I, I'm not someone who sees a lot of detail fulfilled in this, but I see the, the broad strokes of what God's going to do in the future. These three feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tents. I've been, it says the Feast of Booths, but I keep having people tell me at the door, the last couple service, it sounds like the Feast of Booze, which, I, so I'm going to go with tents from now on. 
All right, verse 23, the Feast of Trumpets. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with the blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. So what's the deal with the trumpets? Why would you have a feast all about trumpets? Um, what do you do on a feast of trumpets? How, how, does this, how does this work? What's the deal with trumpets? Um, by trumpet, of course, don't think about a brass instrument with valves. Um, think about like a, a ram's horn, what's sometimes known as a shofar. Um, and it's an arresting instrument. It's meant to stop you in your tracks. It's used to break through the noise, break through uh, the din and the, the noise of the world and stop you where you are in order to listen to what's being played. It's not so much about the music of the trumpets, but it's about the idea that we need to pay attention to what's happening. The prophets would pick up this language, this language of trumpets, Isaiah and Ezekiel, and especially Joel, and would use this as a call for Israel to repent. They'd say, listen to the trumpet. This is a sign that God wants to get your attention. And this happens every year. There's this time before the Day of Atonement where Israel is set aside a day to prepare their hearts for what's going to come uh, what's going to come in terms of their reconciliation with God. Um, we still have that sort of idea with trumpets, right? That the trumpets cut through the noise. That's why I use a bugle or a trumpet to play revelry or taps. That it, it, as an instrument, it just has this way of getting your attention. I played the trumpet when I was a kid, and uh, one of the favorite things that a 10-year-old boy would do with a trumpet was to see how loud you could play the trumpet. Um, and there's a certain violence to it as an instrument that made my dog cry, um, not, I didn't intentionally make him cry. He just heard me playing, and he would start howling. Anyway, so why does this matter in your life? Well, in the New Testament, we see that trumpets mark the return of Jesus. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that it's a trumpet that will sound, and the dead will raise imperishable, and we shall all be changed. And 1 Thessalonians says that when the Lord returns, it will be with the sound of the trumpet of God. Christ's return is marked by trumpets. And it's the first of these three fall feasts that we look forward to, right? That there's the day that Jesus will return. Now, the Feast of Trumpets occurs in its importance in some ways to prepare the people for the Day of Atonement, that they need to acknowledge and reconcile their sin before God. It's one of those holidays that's important in what it leads up to. Like, Good Friday is three days before Easter. Uh, the beginning of Advent is before the holiday of Christmas. The NFC Championship game is before the Super Bowl. Um, I thought that was funny. All right. And the holiday that follows the trumpets is the Day of Atonement, sometimes called the Yom Kippur. And on that, this is what it says in verse 27. Now on the 10th day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourself, or we might translate that, you'll fast, and present a food offering to the Lord. Israel, like us, is reminded annually of their sinfulness and their need for forgiveness before God. That's what atonement means. The idea that there is a gap between them and God as a result of their sins against him and against their neighbor. And much of Leviticus and the rest of the books of the Pentateuch talk about that gap, that need for forgiveness in some way. And there's a lot of offerings that are prescribed, guilt offerings, sin offerings, that are done throughout the year. But every year on one day, Israel's reminded that none of those offerings are going to close that gap by themselves. That their guilt needs to be taken on by someone else. 
And so on the Day of Atonement, Israel's high priest would put his hands on a goat and put the guilt of the nation on the goat and send it off into the wilderness as an act of uh, asking for God's forgiveness by putting their sin on a scapegoat. That's where we get the term from. Now, I want to pause here and say, if you hear that and you're like, that is so weird. Bob, I don't think that sins can be put on goats or sheep or cats or dogs or any other animal. Like, how could you think, how could you be so superstitious? Like, maybe you're thinking like, I want to believe the Bible. I want to believe that's true. But that's just so hard to believe in a modern world that an animal can take away our sin like that. Well, let me, let me push back on that for a second. Let's talk about the difference here between ritual and superstition. Ritual is when we do something physically to represent a spiritual reality. That's what's happening here with the sacrifices. Superstition is where we think a physical act can create a spiritual event. So let me use an example. This piece of gold, I assume it's real gold, on my finger represents my relationship with my wife and my marriage to her. Um, I don't think it causes my marriage to my wife. I didn't just go to a jewelry store and put it on and be like, yep, you're married to me now, right? Um, it's, a, it's a ritual, not a superstition. Now, the second objection that sort of comes up with this is, okay, even if it's a ritual, even if it's just meant to represent something, is this really helpful in the modern world? The idea that we can just off-put our guilt onto someone else? We can put it onto a scapegoat? I mean, is this really what's productive? Shouldn't we take responsibility for our own sin? Shouldn't we take responsibility for what we've done to hurt people? Well, I think in many ways, the scapegoat, the Day of Atonement, does encourage taking responsibility. Rather than ignoring their sin, rather than neglecting it, rather than pretending it doesn't exist, Israel's told, no, every year you need to take responsibility for the way you've sinned. And part of that responsibility is acknowledging that you can't close that gap with God on your own. And the goat represents this day that's coming in the future when someone will need to stand before you on your behalf before a holy God. And you cannot solve it on your own. And of course, we look forward to that day as Christians now when Christ comes again, when the trumpets have sounded, we're before God, and it's not a goat, but it's Jesus himself who's died in our place, who's taken on our guilt as his own, who saves us. Well, the the last feast day after the Day of Atonement is the Feast of Tents, the Feast of Booths. And I think this is the most fun of the holidays, personally. Look at how it's described in verse 40. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Right? Not just one day, but seven days of celebrating that they are forgiven, that their sins have been washed away. And then they're told, take as a people and go out and camp for the time. Look at verse 42. You shall dwell in tents for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in tents that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in tents when I bought them, brought them out of Egypt. For I am the Lord your God. If you heard that as a biblical argument to go camping, you are right. That is a <laughs> biblical argument for camping. But it's, it's much more than that. It's more important than that. It's an argument that... Um, after God's plan of salvation has completed, after Christ has returned, after we are uh, with him forever, that we dwell not just in a booth made by human hands, but that's the ritual to represent what we have to come, that one day we'll dwell with God forever. That as Jesus says in John 14, that he goes to prepare a place for you, that we may dwell with him there. And the Feast of Tents 
looks forward to that day and reminds us that even now we're dwelling in temporary homes, but that our eternal home is with God. All right, I know we're over time, but just real quick, how do you think about these things as a Christian? Right? Is this just an interesting thing, the same as if you heard a lecture on, uh, I don't know, holidays from um, India or China or something, and you thought, oh, that's interesting, that's how they did it in that culture, that's interesting. Is there something that can help you here as a Christian? Now, I'm hesitant to say that you, you should celebrate these. In fact, Romans 14 says that it's within the realm of Christian freedom how we choose to celebrate different holidays. And as Christians, we have our own holidays that are important to us, uh, like Easter and Christmas that we've mentioned before. But I think there's something important that you can take away from Leviticus 23. It's that uh, God wants you to create an intentional plan to remember his faithfulness. He wants you to create an intentional plan to remember his faithfulness. And there's a value in celebrating that together in families and in churches, and that those remembrances should be times of celebrating and feasting. Now, there's, there's Christian holidays that we all celebrate, like Easter and Christmas, but there's probably days in your life or in your family's life that you could mark aside on an annual basis to remember God's faithfulness. Maybe you know the day of the year that you became a Christian, and maybe you want to intentionally put that on your calendar as a time to remember God's faithfulness. Maybe there's a time that you saw God answer a prayer, and every year you want to be reminded of that as well. Maybe you want to take more seriously the church calendar, times of, uh, from Christmas time to Epiphany, uh, from Epiphany to the beginning of Lent, all the way through Easter, and, and so on. These feasts marked off Israel's life in a way that helped them to hear the story of salvation every year. And most importantly, these feasts showed Israel what was to come in Christ. A Passover lamb who would forgive them of their sins in Jesus. A first fruits, not just of agricultural goods, but of the resurrection itself. And a culmination of God's faithfulness that comes not in more grain, but in the Spirit himself. And the feasts help us look forward to what's to come. To the trumpet sounding and Jesus descending to atonement that marks not just once for the year, but once for all time in Christ's blood, and a dwelling not made by human hands, but made by Jesus' own hands, that we can dwell with him forever. I hope that these feasts help you to see how God's beauty throughout Scripture points us to him and what it means that we can mark a life and create a community that tells the story of his salvation forever. Let's close our time in prayer. Jesus, thank you for your salvation. Thank you that um, you put scripture together in a way that points us to you. God, forgive us for the ways that we are flippant about your word. um, And forgive us for the ways that we let the world mold us and shape us. God, we're grateful for the country we live in. We're grateful for the culture that we're part of in many ways. But we know that, um, that in some ways it pushes us away from you. God, we ask that you would form our minds, our hearts, and our lives on you. Keep us from being pressed into the mold of this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I love the reminder this morning that that these feasts, these celebrations are not just for the moment uh, to enjoy, but they point us forward uh, to to our future, to our hope uh, with God. And whoa, and the lights are now dramatically dimmed. And so this song does that for us. This final song of response just kind of turns our eyes towards this great feast in heaven where there'll be no more tears, no more sorrow. All will be made right at this great feast. Let's sing together as we remind our hearts.
and we will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say together, we will feast and weep no more. Let's sing that again. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He's done great things. We will say together as we continue to sing we will not be burned 